Welcome to the Let's Talk podcast, Life in Lockdown, from the University of Edinburgh and Edinburgh Student Association, keeping us together and sharing experiences in this extraordinary period of social distancing. I'm Harriet Harris, the University Chaplain, and today I'm talking to Dr. Donna Dalgetty, a former PhD student and medical and nursing lecturer at the University of Edinburgh, and now a hospital doctor in the south of England. Donna gives us some amazing insights into life on the wards during the COVID-19 pandemic, the ways in which the crisis is changing the NHS and changing how doctors look after patients, one another and themselves, what it's like to be delivering compassionate care through layers of personal protective equipment and to be stepping up into the role of a companier at the time of death because family members, chaplains and others are not able to be present. She talks about welcoming the brand new cohort of doctors who are joining the wards without the usual completion of medical school and preparatory training. These, she says, will probably become the best leaders the NHS has ever had. So Donna, thanks ever so much for uh, coming to talk this afternoon with your extremely busy life at the moment, being on the front line in the uh, hospital wards. Can you first of all tell us a bit about yourself? So yeah, I'm... Donna Dalgetty. Uh, I'm currently working in uh, St Mary's Hospital on the Isle of Wight. I have two roles. I am currently uh, a physician associate working in the acute medical area of the hospital and I'm a course director for the physician associate programme at the University of Portsmouth. And just to say, I mean, you've got connections with lots of universities, but you're you're connected to the University of Edinburgh. Do you want to just say a bit about your connection? Yeah, my home. Edinburgh? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I... Uh, did my PhD at the University of Edinburgh at the uh, medical school. Uh, and then I uh, took up a lecturer's post uh, in both the School of Medicine. And then I was seconded to the nursing school uh, down at Tibet uh, and lectured yeah. there for quite a few years. Yeah. So then you've, now you've gone into medical practice yourself and are, are working down south. So am I right then that you are um, looking after the new medics that are coming onto the wards at the moment the six years that have just been fast-tracked through graduation is that right yeah we have a we have a so obviously normally they would they would come in August and they would be called foundation year ones um, and now they're called interim foundation years uh, mm. so yeah we're we're bringing them in we're fast-tracking their induction period and we're supporting them sort of pastorally and clinically into and we're, we're really grateful to have them so you're experiencing the the new students coming onto the wards who have graduated three or four months earlier than they're expecting to yeah what's it like um it's both exciting and frightening at the same time i guess the only other thing i can liken it to is when uh my kinship daughter went to high school for the first time so it's like it's exciting because that's the next stage, but it's also worrying because you don't know what's going to happen and you just want to wrap your arms around them and protect them. But actually, that's not what they need at this stage. They need to be encouraged and pushed forward. So it's kind of that's the only sort of thing I can give people listening if they've got any idea of, you know, taking their child for the first day in primary school, or first day of high school or even waving them off to university for the first time. It's just yeah. that level of both anticipation, excitement and anxiety altogether. Okay. And, and for them, I don't I mean knowing the medical education system and what we do with these guys in their final year they're they're just you know they haven't had their summer break which we normally encourage them no. to have and they haven't had the weeks and weeks of um sort of pre-training that they get before they come to the trust and then normally when they're in the trust it's two weeks of kind of orientation and training and 
gentle welcome. Uh, these guys have been chucked right in the deep end. They're going to have some amazing stories to tell, aren't they, about that? And, yeah. And yet it'll also be the only filter they know in terms of what is it like starting at starting out as a doctor. So one of the things I've said to them is there are lots of challenges uh, in a medical career. Uh, some of them you will you will succeed at, some of them you will feel disappointed with, and some of them you will feel, you know, why did I choose this as a career? The benefit these guys have coming in during this uh, current crisis is nothing is ever going to be as hard as this ever again. So they're going to go forward in their careers. We're going to probably have, these guys are going to be probably the best generation of doctors we've ever produced in that they're coming in at this stage and they're being exposed to this. They're learning very quickly. And from that point onwards, they're probably not going to have the level of anxiety that, or imposter syndrome that we would normally have in the gentle way of introducing ourselves to our medical careers. That's such an interesting set of uh, insights and forecasts, really. So there's quite a lot of uh, literature now about how much doctors are suffering from imposter syndrome, isn't there? And the almost the sort of self-reflexive way of working of how are you feeling when you're starting out? How are you feeling as a medical student? How are you then feeling as a new doctor? Um, And you're saying that in a way being thrown into the deep end um, without time to um, think too much about should you be there or not, because clearly everybody is needed yep. there, uh, it, it's going to bypass some of that. Really well, cool. we've all suffered it, and, and no doubt they will suffer it. Um, yeah. But they've also got a little bit of leeway in that we know they're here earlier than they should be. We know we haven't provided them with what they're entitled to in terms of a structured introduction to their career. Um, so the expectations of them aren't as high as they might have been when they came in August. And it's definitely... So they're coming in with a bit of understanding about it. Yeah, and it's a supportive environment. You know, everyone is looking out for each other. The traditional hierarchies um, are very flat now. It's very much a team. It's very much uh, everyone's in scrubs. Everyone is in PPE. Um, Mm. Everyone does what they feel they're able to do. And there's no shame in anyone saying, actually, you know, I've, I've reached my limit for today. We expect that from each other and are supportive of it. That's fantastic. So so it's losing that sense of I've got to show myself to be omnicompetent, able to handle everything. Yeah, it's, it's taken away that, that pressure to prove yourself yeah. that we all have at the early stages of our medical career. And actually it continues, but we just get better at hiding it. Um, right. <laughs> whereas at the moment, yeah. actually, the expectation is almost always that you're going to find this hard. So if you find it hard, that's okay. Yeah. And, and say so and do, you know, and take the time to look after yourself. I mean, I've always kind of lamented and being quite a cynic about the whole um, NHS, no blame culture, freedom to speak up. But actually, it's true now. I can actually see it in action. And my hope is after this that we never go back to the way we were before, that we yeah. do see each other, that we do take human factors more to our heart in terms of we are all humans and we all have a role and we all have bad days, good days but all equal value and worth as a member of that team and all of us um, from the cleaner, the porter, right up to the um, chief executive of the hospital have an equal contribution and value and worth in that team. That would be a fantastic uh, outcome, wouldn't it, from this really difficult uh, set of circumstances. And I'm very struck, Donna, that you're talking about how the new doctors coming in are being really supported because... You could imagine it might go the other way, not in them being unsupported, but just in everybody being so pushed and so fraught 
uh, that to have the time to think about others coming in who are new and need support could get pushed out. So I know that you're wearing multiple hats because you're you're not only looking after students, but you're doing a lot of the frontline care of COVID-19 patients, aren't you? Can you tell us a bit about what that's like? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I... Uh, thought that I, you know, I'm, I'm typically based in emergency department, so accident and emergency, and obviously you meet people in accident emergencies. It's not normally one of the best days of their life. Um, they're normally there in extremis. So I, I'm used to dealing with difficult human situations. I'm not used wow. to dealing with that um, behind a mask and uh, a gown and goggles and three sets of gloves. And I'm also not used to dealing with people as patients on their own. They normally come with their supporters, their relatives, their loved ones, and we don't have that now. Mm. So you're having this double thing, supporting that patient without being able to give them the normal human signals that you care, and also having to phone people um, to explain what's happening with their loved one, and sometimes with very bad news, without the um, visual cues as to how that's being received and how to tailor that delivery of that information appropriate to that audience. And that's, I think, we've all found really challenging is how we, we deliver that. So because you, you would usually see somebody face-to-face when you were delivering bad news, you'd be able to read um, from their body language and facial expressions right in front of you yes. how they're taking it, what they need, and over the phone that's it's just gone. very different. Yeah, and and also yeah. they're able to read your body language. You know, you're you're open, you're leaning towards them. You've got a box of tissues. You can put an arm on their shoulder. All these little subtle things that provide comfort to each other that we do as humans. You know, don't have to be a healthcare provider to do that. That's what we naturally do. Um, yeah. And not being able to have that interaction to the same level at really frightening, unprecedented times. Um, so even with patients yeah. that don't have uh, this awful virus, because we're not allowing people to come into the hospital, they're on their own. It's an incredibly lonely time for them. And you're having to step into the breach of being with patients at the point of death to a greater extent than you might otherwise yes. have been. So um, delivery of care. Um, so we try to, if we've got um, very ill end-of-life patients on the, the ward, um we always make sure there's always uh, two people with that patient at all times. Um, Amazing. Sitting with them Amazing. and talking to them. And that can take hours, as I'm sure you're aware, as a chaplain. Um, and nobody begrudges that. Mm. Uh, so that's a change in approach as to how we, mm. we deliver that. And also um, looking out for each other. So it takes an emotional toll. We are humans at the end of the day. Um, we are all away from our own families and friends because obviously we can't risk uh, contaminating them if we've been at the hospital so it, it's we're already kind of feeling vulnerable anyway because we're we can always you know the congruence of it is that could be my mum or dad or sister or you know how would I feel and sort of try to tap into that and just say right okay for today I'm with this patient and I am their relative and I care about them as much as I would care about my own family. I just think it's amazing um, first of all that that um, there is that level of resourcing and attentiveness that two two people dedicated to one patient is just astonishing. It is. The NHS is able to stretch to that. It's, it's a recognition. So traditionally, yeah. we would go on as medics, we'd do the ward round, we'd review the patients, we would record in the notes, uh, update family, 
And that would normally involve what time of the family coming in or phoning them to say come in. And then one of us would maybe go and speak to them or we would delegate that to a nurse. Um, but we would carry on as normal. Um, we wouldn't really consider that much beyond that. That, that. that just would happen and we would speak to the relatives and we would speak to the patient with the relatives and separate and vice versa. Um, mm. Now, we do the ward round. Who's going to phone this person and let them know what's happening with their relative? Who phoned them yesterday? Purpose of continuity, can you rephone them? And we're spending quite a lot of time uh, discussing. So, we, you know, we might have, so this morning, for instance, about 26 patients want to review. Um, that involves 26 phone calls to the relatives or the care providers of those patients just to update them and keep them in touch with what's happening. Um, yeah. And, it, you know, there's issues with consent and things like that as well. So we have to keep asking the patient, is it okay for you? for us to speak to your partner or your son or daughter about this, you know, so it's just, yeah. and having those, so you build up this relationship with someone on the phone that you've never met. Um, and the idea is that makes it easier. If things do go bad, it's not a complete stranger that's phoning up the relative to say, look, unfortunately um, we're in the last few years of life. Um, yeah. And since uh, Matt Honkot, announced that we are allowed relatives in if they're end of life and they meet certain criteria we have been at that stage um trying to get patients relatives to come in to be alongside them at that point how has that change in policy affected you um i think it's trying to get people to understand that they need to recognize when that happens because it's not as easy as it sounds recognizing when someone is at that stage where they need their relative and also risk assessing you know so we had uh, a lady last week who unfortunately was in the last hours of her life but her husband was in his 80s with cardiac issues and was high risk to be coming into the hospital Mm. and compassion versus medical knowledge Do we want, you know, and how much do we take that decision away from them as a family in terms of they're emotional, they're upset. And, of course, our natural reaction is always to run towards um, our loved ones. However, Mm. do we as healthcare professionals want someone else to be impacted by this virus as a result of that time with their relatives? So it's a really difficult conversation to have. It's a really difficult risk assessment. trying to are you making are you making those assessments in teams or or does it sometimes sit on an individual to just Uh, decide we try um do it as a team Mm. but sometimes these things occur at 10 o'clock at night and there isn't a team on the board there's a few of you yeah um we do have with the wonder of modern technology we've got i mean we've now and that's the other benefit that we've never had. We've pretty much got 24-7 contact with our uh, consultant team. So we WhatsApp them and say, look, this patient, you know, I'm worried. I don't know what to do. Help. So we we have not normally would have had that level of contact out of ours. We do now, um, which is really good because you just have this extra layer of support that, yes, we're trained to make those kind of decisions, but at the moment those decisions are a bit more complicated than they normally would have been. So it's nice to have that extra layer of uh, senior support with more experience behind you. Can I ask you another question about um, PPE, Donna? Because you wear hearing aids. Does, how does the PPE affect that? So for people that are listening, I rely quite heavily on people using their mouths when they talk. 
and their general body language and facial expressions to try and uh, fill in what I can. I mean, I can hear, but it's not always clear. So, but using the whole uh, sort of body language and movement of the lips, I'm normally very good at picking up what's going on. Obviously, we're all dressed up in in uh, masks and goggles. I can't see people's faces, so I uh, have at times struggled. However, because we're working in the same teams all the time, every day, and everyone's aware of that, I am aware I can almost predict what someone's going to say about a situation. Uh, So sometimes I'll just say, okay, so (laughs) you've just said this, right? (laughs) (laughs) And they go, yeah. "Yeah." And I'm like, okay, so this is what I think. Uh, Where that falls down, and it falls down for everyone, not necessarily me, um, is with patient care. Because equally... We have patients who also rely, I mean, you know, patients that are hard of hearing, they also rely on our body language and our mouths and our smiles to to work out uh, whether we're saying something bad or good. You know, you can say something um, and the the person's facial expression changes what that is, uh, how that's received. And our patients aren't necessarily getting that information anymore and it's a confusing, lonely position for them to be in. So I have found myself, uh, because I can't, they can't see me smile, I do my little dance at the bottom of their bed and I put my thumbs up and they know that, that <laughs> things are okay and they, you know, and I can see them smile. Um, yeah. And I, and I can it, see you doing your little dance. Yeah, you, I think you've, you've <laughs> suffered my little dances in the past. So, yeah, <laughs> uh, I still do them. Um, Good. It cheers up That's everyone good. in the ward, but it certainly gives patients reassurance that although I can't come and hold their hand and hug them or do all the human things I can do, I can do my silly little dance and that makes them smile. That's brilliant, brilliant. And can I ask you about, I mean, we've messaged about uh, the Thursday night clapping of the NHS and all the public support and the police turning up at the hospitals to clap and all of that, and it's very moving. But what effect is that having um, upon you as practitioners or that the sort of public uh, understanding of the NHS at the moment? So honestly... <laughs> Yeah, honestly, yeah. Um, before, when when the very first one, when everyone was saying, okay, Thursday, we're going to have a clap for it, I thought, oh, come on, guys, that, you know, what does that mean? That's not going to do anything. That's just silly. Um, but when it happened, <laughs> um, yeah, it was very moving. It was very humbling. It made us feel supported. It made us feel valued. Um, and that was just, I was at home that evening, and my host, and I don't know anyone on my street, don't have a clue who they are. I put some cards through their doors when this thing started, just saying, look, um, I'm a key worker. I'm allowed out. I can get shopping for you. Let me know. Um, oh, that's and that, that, to just to be sat in the house and the, te- the TV went, now we're going to do this applause, and it just kind of stopped, didn't it, the telly? Um, yeah, and yeah. then to hear this noise, um, <laughs> and I sort of looked out the window and there were neighbours every single door down the street uh, from streets as far as I could see in here the boats in the dock were blurring them their horns and everybody was out with pots wow. and pans and banging them and cheering and I just was completely uh, overwhelmed by it and then after that a couple of weeks and it was just you did you know it brought a tear to your eye um, and then there was the evening I was at work on the Thursday night clapathon, and the police turned up at the front of the hospital en masse mm-hmm. and just started mm-hmm. flashing their lights and clapping and, and coming in with um, food. <laughs> um, there's, oh, they- there's, there's one way to an NHS worker's heart, and that's definitely hot food at the moment. They are also on the front line. They're also having to deal with, with things. And yeah. 
So yeah. to have that level of respect from what I see as another uh, emergency frontline service was, was, you know, it moved all of us. It really did shake us. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's nice to know that the public are, I mean, they're, they're to be commended. Um, the stay home, save lives, save the NHS thing, actually it works. Mm. And people are, by and large, adhering to that, and it does make a difference. I, I think of it a bit like... Uh... You know when you're when you're running a marathon or a half marathon. Oh, you remember have. when we did that? <laughs> <laughs> We're never, never, thinking, never doing that again. But I was thinking of those lovely people who cheer when you're near the crown of the hill, and it it helps to get you. You somehow get some energy from it. It does. It I really mean. does, um, yeah. and it does make you feel right. Okay, today was really bad, and I feel like I want to run away, uh, but actually. This this is what this is my calling. This is what I need to do, and I need to support those around me as well. And we're all looking out for each other. I mean, we're all going to have our bad days. The key is we don't all have them at the same time. No, isn't that good though? Then, then you can can support one another. Yeah, it's and about you, recognizing you, the early signs. You know, if we know each other, okay. you know, you recognize that actually Donna's looking a bit quiet today. I'm maybe just going to give her a wee nudge on the elbow because we don't shake hands anymore, but we we tap our elbows. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. and say is everything okay you know and just this message of it's absolutely okay and even better than okay it's expected for you to be not okay and that is a, a, a real sea change in the medical profession isn't it massive not having to look like you're toughing it out not having to think about uh, you know the competitive environment that, that medicine often is in a way, in a strange sense, it's a safer environment in terms of our mental health and yeah. well-being in that yeah. there isn't that stiff upper lip and, you know, I'm going to pretend I'm doing okay and go home and, and really, you know, I'm not okay. Um, mm. But it is, you know, even from consultant level. So, and again, with this flat and hierarchy, I speak about a couple of months ago, I never would have gone up to my senior consultant and said, look, you're right, you're looking a bit tired because that would have been you know, and you know, seen as being a bit disrespectful, he might have interpreted that as a failing in his part. That a junior has come up to him and said, "You know, are you okay?" Um, mm-hmm. Whereas now, I wouldn't hesitate, and actually, it's welcomed and it's accepted. Um, yeah, because it's tough being a leader at times as well, and it can be a lonely place. Um, yeah. So they're they're taking on everything that we're taking on, but they're also taking on all the stuff that their team believe them have. So they're they're carrying all of that. And it's just really nice to be able to say to them, look, thanks, and I really appreciate the support, and we recognise that, you know, you're working really hard, but also, do you know what, we've got this covered, and we think you should maybe take a day off. And having that type of conversation with someone that's really senior that we normally wouldn't have had um, Mm. has changed things, uh, and I hope um, for for permanently. Yeah, it'd be so interesting to see what changes stick. Yeah. Um, can I ask you uh, also, because um, I know you've had in mind very much the um, the the sort of well being of the grieving uh, family members as well, and about uh, you know whether whether you feel for their grieving process sometimes it's helpful to have a bit of a pushback against the you know the medical carers, but they're not doing that at the moment because of the. Because everybody's so grateful to the NHS. Are you able to say a bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, I've grief and, and stress extremists can present in a number of ways. And quite often, as healthcare professionals, it presents as um, a challenge. And, you know, are you sure? And can you just, you know, 
you can't give up on them and you need to do this and you need, you know, or I don't understand mm. or I'm, why didn't you tell do this, something about this earlier type stuff. Um, whereas now you sort of, you're on the phone and you speak to someone and you say, unfortunately, you know, there's nothing else we can do. And there's just this support from the relative back towards you instead of them taking on board what you've said and allowing you to support them in the way you would like. You're getting back this um, sort of, oh, I'm so sorry you've had to phone me about this. I'm so sorry that you've had to deal with my loved one dying. Um, I know you've done everything and I'm so grateful. And you're like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Don't you want to ask questions about this? Don't you want to check what? And there isn't. And there's just this sort of acceptance and lack of anger, lack of frustration. You know, we, you know, the amount of people I've seen come into hospital in previous times where we've got restricted visiting hours and there's sometimes people have objected to that and there's been a bit of kind of, I want to see my relative and you don't have a right to keep me away from them. There's been nothing, not a thing. Right. You know, yeah. and to yeah. be to phone up and say to someone, your husband's dying, probably not going to make it through the night, just to reassure you I'm going to sit with him and he's not in pain and do all those things. And for them not to say, I want to be there and I can't believe you're not letting me in no anger at all and I just and we're expecting that backlash we're Mm -hmm. expecting that anger and we're almost better prepared for that than we are the sort of we're so sorry that you have to deal with this yeah really takes the rug from under you and you just don't know and my I guess as a healthcare professional my concern is the longer term mental health aspect of that for the relative and that they've not really allowed that bereavement reaction to happen okay so that might be something to be looking at or for people like you know myself you know chaplains people in those sorts of roles as as well as uh uh you know health carers to to be thinking about that looking forward isn't it where's the where has the room for grief been because we also haven't been able to have funerals in the usual way no Um, so i think there will be work to do afterwards where they're the kind of aftercare I mean, I think the healthcare chaplains as a group, um, certainly the the wonderful team I work with, um, mm-hmm. they're 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 taking this on. The, they're quite hard, and they're kind of the unsung heroes because this is their whole point of being. They're there to support staff. They're there to support relatives. They're there to support patients. And in a lot of respects, there is a huge um, perspective barrier between us and them. Um, right. And I think that's really hard for their way of being um we can see them and we know they're there and i am internally grateful that they are there but they are not able to function in the way they would like um so yes we are finding it hard because we have to access patients and relatives in a slightly different way but a lot of chaplains have just been not able to access that at all and even for staff you know they come in and, and and check on us which we're really grateful for but they have to stand at the door of the ward and we have to wear ppe and go towards them so yeah, and they can't be given PPE because it's in such a We don't have much so they, of it, and they, they don't want to take it, bless them, um, right. because they, they don't feel that they're worthy of it, and I, I disagree strongly about that. I think they're, they're like I say, everyone in the team is, is valuable, and I think their value is never being greater. All the normal things that we totally take for granted are completely restricted right now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that's if you're lucky enough to be with your relative at the end of the, the day. Even access to the body is restricted at the moment and that's quite damaging to the grief process because you're you know 
your husband goes into hospital, you speak to him on the phone, and then suddenly it stops, and you haven't seen him, you haven't seen him get ill, you haven't seen him get worse, you haven't seen him yeah. passed on. That is hard for the brain to process, and that's where yeah. we need our chaplains to be alongside, and I think they've got a value valuable contribution just on an ending note donna what are the things that you're discovering in this pandemic that you think you would not have discovered otherwise or that wouldn't have happened otherwise um the resilience the bravery the dedication Mm. of our medical students and nursing students and physician associate students who have without hesitation come into this uh crisis to take up their profession before time without knowing what, what was ahead of them. I just, I've got nothing but pure admiration for them. And like I said earlier, I think we're going to produce the best generation of healthcare professionals that we've ever had since the concept of the NHS. Isn't that fantastic? And it will be great to be able to see that happening. Before our eyes, it will be unfolding in our time. I can't wait. I think, you know, these are our future leaders um, mm. and they're not yeah. going to forget this experience and they're going to they're going to revolutionise the way we deliver healthcare and patient care. And who knows, maybe this is the best thing that's ever happened to us in this country. Ha, amazing. Donna, thanks so much. It's been really, really great to talk to you and lovely to talk to you again. Yeah, thanks, Thank Harriet. You. Okay, you take care. Take Bye-bye. care. I hope all continues well. Bye, Donna. Bye. For the latest university COVID 19 advice and news, go to the University of Edinburgh website and you'll find all the links you need at the top of the homepage. If you would like to discuss any issues affecting you from this podcast or would like welfare support during lockdown, you can contact the university's listening service by emailing listening.service at ed.ac.uk. The listening service is run by the chaplaincy and is for all Edinburgh students and staff.